My sermon title this morning is, The Confusion Continues, Jesus Was Numbered with the Transgressors. And uh, maybe the most interesting word in that title is the word continues, right? Um, I think the disciples were often very confused about who Jesus was and what he was doing. Let me give you some examples of that, and then we'll think about it from this passage that I'm about to read. So when, G- when Jesus was at the, uh, uh, traveling through Samaria, and he stopped at Jacob's well, and he sent his disciples into uh, the town uh, to buy some food, you know, like a Big Mac and some fries, and come back. And he said, I'll stay here by the well. And um, he sat there, and of course the woman came at a time that was not the right time for women normally to come. Uh, she was converted... And about that time, the disciples came back, and uh, they came back with the Big Mac and the fries, you might say. And uh, so Jesus is all pumped because this woman has become a a believer, a, a follower. And it says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? I mean, they just didn't get it. They were just really confused. And I could uh, give you other stories like that. Uh, John 11, Lazarus died. And Jesus said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples said, well, if he's asleep, he's going to wake up. And they just didn't get it. They were just confused. In John 14, and Jesus said, uh, I'm going away. And he said, now you know the way I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. But probably probably the preeminent point of confusion about Jesus was in Matthew 16, when uh, Jesus said uh, to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And after some false answers, Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And that's Peter's confession. And if you read down just a few more verses, you get to what I call Peter's confusion. Because right after Peter's confession, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he himself must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him inside and began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's confession was followed by Peter's confusion. We're confused too, right? We're confused about Jesus. Uh, If I said, is Jesus coming back? You'd say, sure, I believe that. I'd say, when? (laughs) We'd get a lot of answers, wouldn't we? Nobody really knows. We're often very confused about why God is doing what He's doing, the way He's doing it, and what He's not doing. Right? So this confusion about God and His ways with His people is not surprising because God is God and His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and we're finite and we're not all-knowing. 
So it's not surprising that they were sometimes confused, and it's not surprising that we are sometimes confused. And this passage is another example of of the disciples being very confused about who Jesus uh, is and about what he's doing. So let's have a look, trusting the Holy Spirit to help us. Let me lead us in prayer before we read. Father, we do believe that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and we pray it will be that way in our midst today, that um, you will open us up to the things you want to tell us, and you will take away some of our confusion. And uh, we pray that in the place of that confusion will be real life-transformative understanding and wisdom about who you are and what you're doing. And Lord, if there's some that have never known you as Lord and Savior, if we could lift Jesus up and he be seen and that happen, that they come to know you, that would be great. And use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. So now we're considering these dinner party dialogues. This is the ultimate dinner party in one sense. This is the the Last Supper, the first Lord's Supper. And um, they've had this discussion about who is the greatest. Uh, Jesus has foretold Peter's denial. Um, And then in verse 35 of Luke 22, we read these words. And he said to them... When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. The grass withers, the flowers will fade. This word will not fade. It's God's word. It will abide forever and forever. My first point is to note that there is a change of missionary strategy in verse 35 and verse 36. Uh, It is about strategy for mission. He says... When I sent you out, when I put you out on mission, here's the way I did it. Uh, He's got a, a, he wants to begin this little part of the dialogue with a recollection. But let's not forget, let's not miss that Jesus is very concerned that mission may continue after his death. The last thing he said was what we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus is concerned about mission. He said, well, formerly when I sent you out, it was like this. Look back at Luke 9. If you've got a Bible and haven't opened it yet, open it and look at Luke 9. Uh, And this is one of those stories where he, or one of the occasions rather, when he sent out the twelve. 
Luke 9 at verse 1, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Their method was proclamation in verse 2, preaching in verse 6, The content of their message was the kingdom of God in verse 2, the gospel in verse 6. The confirmation of their message was the healing ministry that they would do. And the support of their mission is, well, don't take anything with you. You'll get that from people along the way. Maybe they were popular enough in those days that his disciples could go that way. I'm not sure. In chapter 10, he sends out the 72, chapter 10, verse 1 and following, and it's very much the same. So he's got this former strategy, go out and don't take anything with you. You didn't lack anything, did you? No, we didn't lack a thing. Then in verse 36, he tells them what, not what their former strategy would be, but what their future strategy is going to be. He says in verse 36, he said, But now, here's a a contrast, an adversative statement, let the one who has a money bag take it. So if you've got any cash or credit cards, guys, take it with you. Let the one who has, and likewise, a knapsack, take a suitcase, maybe a backpack, have a change of clothes with you. And the one who has no sword, sell his cloak and buy one. Now, that last thing, if you have no sword, uh, take... Uh, uh, your cloak, sell your cloak and buy one. I think Jesus is telling them, look guys, there's going to be serious danger out there um, because to sell a cloak, I mean, back in Exodus 22, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear it for I'm compassionate. It'd be like in Portland saying, sell your raincoat in the fall. You know? I mean, it's like, really? You want me to sell my cloak? Why? Well, there's serious danger coming. You're going to need a sword. Now, is he saying, the the question just screams out at us, that the kingdom will come by way of, 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 of conflict, by militaristic means? And, um, I'm going to answer that by reference to something else in Luke 22, uh, over in verse uh, 47. When Jesus is arrested, you know, he's in Gethsemane, it's dark. Um, uh, Judas leads uh, the bad guys there um, to to arrest Jesus. And at one point uh, in verse 49, when those who were with, who were around him, saw what would follow, they said, Lord... Shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. 
Now, that's in the same chapter as the sell your cloak and buy a sword. And uh, Lord, we got two swords. He says, that's enough. So what's going on here? Well, pretty obviously, uh, and in other passages, I think we're told that it's Peter that cut off the, the ear of, of the high priest's servant, who in another uh, passage we're told his name was Malchus. And it's interesting to think that with a sword, he cut off his ear. I mean, you've got to say, well, what was going on there? You know, did he go and stop? No, I think he was trying to behead Malchus. And Malchus ducked, and he got him right there. And then Jesus took his ear and put it back on and said, no, not that way. Really? So then what is Jesus saying about swords? And I think it best to see it this way. And I think it'll get clear as work through it, so stay with me. I think he's speaking rhetorically and not literally. I think he's setting this up to correct a confusion that exists among the disciples. They still think that the kingdom is going to come by way of a military revolt and running the Romans out of Palestine. They still think that, sure. There's a scene, if you're watching The Chosen, there's a scene in one of the episodes where uh, Jesus is walking along and Peter and a couple of others are behind him and, and Peter says something to the effect of, okay, we're about to get this thing going, you know. And you can just see Peter with a sword in his hand saying, yeah, let's go, man. He doesn't get it. He's confused. I think they're all confused. They're still unaware that Jesus will have to die. They're still like they were back in Matthew 16 when Peter confessed the Christ and they were so confused that the Christ was going to go to the cross. Peter had just said, Lord, I'm ready to die with you. And I think Peter thought that would be in a battle with swords against the Romans. And I think Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to correct that for you. Look at verse 38. In verse 38, when it says, he said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, it's enough. What do you think their reaction was to that? Okay, what do you think their reaction was to that? Two swords. Is that enough? I mean, suppose I said to Monty, Monty, let's go rob all the gold in Fort Knox. If there's any left, who knows? Um, let's go rob all the gold in Fort Knox. I've got a 66 VW Beetle and a 22 rifle and a slingshot. Monty says, yeah, let's go. No. I mean, I think when, they, when he said, it's enough, they looked up at one, what? Their eyes went like this, incredulity is overcoming them? How could two swords be enough to run the Romans out of Palestine? Are you kidding me? Yes, he's kidding them. That's exactly what he's doing. He's kidding them. Of course it was not enough. Why? Because the victory was going to come another way. Oh, it's not about swords at all. What is Jesus saying about mission here? Let's don't forget that. He's saying, look, mainly when I get rejected and crucified, it's going to be a little sea change here, and it's going to be more difficult for you guys. 
It's going to be more difficult for you to proclaim the kingdom and to preach the gospel. Much more difficult. You will need to be more prepared than before. You will not find as much help along the way. Jesus is preparing them for the future. As one man said, the disciples must be prepared for what lies ahead and understand that ministry takes place in a context of opposition. You know, we, don't, we know that in one sense and we forget that in another, right? I mean, if I said to you, is ministry done in a context of opposition? I think those of you that read the Bible would say, yeah, it's done in a context of opposition. And then when we do something for Jesus and there's opposition, we think, oh, what's wrong? We tend to think if the Holy Spirit was in the middle of it, then it would be easy. But Jesus shows us, doesn't he, that you can be squarely in the middle of the will of God and still get crucified. Sure. Disciples serve as aliens in a strange land, as citizens of heaven and not of earth. And we must be ready and aware and prepared. In Acts, the disciples at one point say that they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. May we have that same attitude because all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So he's saying to them, guys, not by swords, it's going to be a different way. Well, what's that way? Well, in verse, the first part of verse 37, for I tell you this, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. Uh, that is a specific explanation. In the latter part of verse 37, he'll give a more general explanation. But there's a, a, it's really a prophecy about a prophecy, right? Um, he, he says, um, I tell you, he's making a prophecy that this scripture that John read from Isaiah 53, he was numbered with the transgressors. This scripture is going to be fulfilled in me. That's what he's saying, right? And the scriptures, he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, clearly, I think that has reference to his crucifixion, which is why I also uh, had John read that in chapter 23, where he's nailed between the two criminals. He's numbered with the transgressors. And I think that's clearly the case. But it has to do with us, too. Because Jesus, in his death, is identifying with sinners. Uh, he's substituting for them, taking the place of them, saying, I'll take their punishment that they deserve. So it's not just he's crucified between two criminals when he says numbered with the transgressors. I'm a transgressor. And he allowed himself to be numbered with me or me to be numbered with him. Why did this happen to the Son of God? Why did this happen to Messiah? I want to be explicitly clear. Because the sins of his people were placed upon him. Because he was despised and rejected by men. And this is how the victory is going to come. This is how the victory is going to come. Not by way of a sword. In Hebrews 2, it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
One of the most provocative books I've read in the last 10 years is, is called, uh, is a, is got a title something like this. My age, you can't remember titles very well, but I, if you want to know, I can tell you. Uh, uh, God, the Divine Warrior. And the Divine Warrior theme is all through the Scriptures. Um, that's what God was doing in, Ex, or in Exodus, the first, you know, uh, say chapter uh, 10 to 20, when they're defeating the, um, the, the Egyptians. That's God, the divine warrior, showing up and fighting for his people. And you find that all through the Old Testament. You find it in the New Testament, too. I mean, you find the last appearance of Jesus uh, in uh, chapters 19 and 20 is, is Jesus appearing as the divine warrior. Is he a divine warrior on the cross? Yeah. Yeah, he is. He's defeating death. Listen to this. He, he likewise partook of flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy. Here's the battle. This is the big battle. This is the battle against the devil. They might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus didn't defeat the devil by swords, no, but by his death, by being numbered with the transgressors, by dying in our place that we might live. It's not by swords taken against the Romans, but by a Roman sword thrust in his side and Roman nails put into his hands and his feet. That's how he would win, and that's how he won. And the victory is sure. Because Jesus Christ lived and died in the place of His people. Look at the Scripture. It says, it must be fulfilled. This Scripture must be fulfilled in me. There's a divine necessity that Jesus Christ would, would be the fulfillment of this. That one person must suffer for other persons. And He did. And praise be to God. And then in the last part of verse 37, there's this general explanation. He says, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. He's saying that everything written about him in the Old Testament will be fulfilled. Not just the final victory of the Messiah, which is yet to come, but the prior suffering of the Messiah, which, praise God, is finished. But they couldn't see it. They couldn't see that he had to suffer. He looked to the world at that point like a loser. But in the long run, he is and will be the winner. Let me give you some closing thoughts about this passage, which has been a blessing to me in preparing this, and I hope to you as well. If you said, how did the disciples go wrong, and did they go wrong in a way that we could go wrong? One of the things you could say is this, that you can want Jesus to be or to say something so much that you can miss other truths that are central to his mission and to his message. Listen carefully. You can want Jesus to be or say something so much that you can miss other truths that are central to his mission and message. How does that happen? Well, I could give you examples for longer than you want to stay and listen um, there's a strain of universalism out there today that says everybody's going to be saved. And the way you get to universalism is when you read the Bible, you, you, for, you read the verses that says God is love and this and those kinds of verses, and you just forget a lot of others. You just don't read them. 
You, 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 you don't have mental category. You want things to be so true. And of course, you could all, we could all want nobody to be punished in hellfire forever, but an honest reading of the Scriptures and a careful reading of the words out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. And Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Scriptures. But isn't God love? Yes, He is love. But that's not all God is. Oh. You can want Jesus to be or say something so much, you can miss other truths that are central to His mission and to His message. You can want Jesus to be the victor. But then you ask questions like, when? How? Well, He won a victory on the cross. He'll win a victory on a white horse at the end of the book of Revelation. But they're both there. You can say that God is gentle and forget that He's judge of the kings of the earth. I charge you, when you read the Bible, to read it honestly, openly. What is this saying? Is this telling me... As a matter of fact, if you read the Bible and you never see things you don't want to be there, you're probably not reading it very honestly, right? It's kind of like wanting the preacher to always say things you like. <laughs> you better pray. I know. That, that's not all I tell you. You'll be in deep weeds if that's all I ever do. Uh, and the same with reading the Scriptures. You better want the Scriptures to slap you in the face from time to time and say, wake up. You've missed this part. It's hard to have a proper balance of what's going on. And then secondly, we can mistakenly believe that our methods are his methods. Peter wanted to take a sword and tear him up. He was wrong. We say, it's common in Presbyterianism to say, that we believe the Scriptures are uh, the inspired and infallible rule of faith and practice. Faith is what we believe. Practice is what we do, how we live. I find that people are very more... People find it much more easy to say, well, I want the Scriptures to be uh, the rule of what I believe, but less inclined to want the Scriptures to be the rule of how they live. Jesus is here telling us how to live because we're on mission. Um, everybody's a missionary in one sense of the word. Everybody's giving witness, good or bad, in one sense of the word. When we're on mission, how do we proceed? Do you think, for instance, and this is debated today quite a bit, will we impress the world more, more by being like the world or being different from the world? Well, it depends on the particular area. But in general, I, I still remember reading in John Stott's book in the early 70s, Christian Counterculture, his book on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, it seems to me if you study church history carefully, you'll see that the church has been most attractive to the world when it was most different to the, from the world. But I think I have friends in ministry today that don't think that's true. If I'll be like the world, they'll be attracted to me. How should we do that? Well, let's read the Bible and see what it says. It's our rule of faith and it's our rule of practice. Be sure of this, though. What is written about Jesus has its fulfillment. He will return and separate the sheep from the goats. He will put his, 
people on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He will judge the living and the dead. He will take his people into his arms and to his place and to himself. He will cast death and hell into the lake of fire. He will cause all kings and authorities and rulers in the universe to bow to himself. He will seat his people at his table and feed them forever. He will dry every tear. He will end all suffering and pain for his people. And on and on and on and on, all that is written about him will be fulfilled. And that's really good news. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you that everything written about you is going to be fulfilled. Someday, Lord, we, we look forward to the clouds parting and every tear being dried and every struggle being ended and every enemy of yours and ours being banished. And we look forward to eating at your table and fellowship with you forever and ever and ever. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will come quickly, that you will help us to take your word as the only infallible rule of faith and of practice that as we are on mission, we would do mission your way because we believe that will say to the world, we believe the gospel is true. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.